hour and a half of the kind of squeaky Mario voice might be a bit much. Um, it's, it's a great personality and great character, but you don't usually hear long monologues in that voice. Hi friends, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. And this is a one-stop podcast to stay up to date with the latest game business news and all of their insights. I'm joined by Anthony Pecorella, co-founder of Level Up Labs, Tim Menville, CPO at Hutch, and a new face today, Tom Kinnember, Web3 Gaming and Navic core consultants. Hi, Tom. Hi. How are you, Maria? I am good. How are you? Yeah, really well. Um, I definitely was a bit sick this weekend, though. I just had a cough and a cold. So coming out the other end of that, um, my voice might sound quite husky because of it. But um, yeah, really excited. Um, been doing a lot of work on Web3 and uh, just mobile consultancy. So been fun. Yeah, you used to be in the free-to-play space, right? And you moved into like the Web3 yeah, I've sort of done a little bit of everything. Been doing mobile basically for 12 years. Um, most recently, actually, was working uh, as a sort of uh, head of product at a London studio, uh, Pixian Games, which are working now on Web3. Um, and then now I'm working with Navic specifically on Web3 and blockchain, and actually with a lot of blockchains as well as gaming companies as well, so sort of expanding beyond on just gaming and sort of working with blockchains directly. Mm. And if there was one in-game animal you could choose to pet, what, what animal would that be? Uh, I would pet a phoenix. I think uh, I like, if I could have anything, I don't need a real animal. I need something dramatic and a, a fiery beast feels like the best. Wow, that sounds very warm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, we're just all t- talking about weather. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, Anthony and Tim, it's really nice to have you here again. It's always good to, to catch up with you. Good to be here. We have a lot to touch on today. Many topics in different areas of the business and games. Uh, we're going to be talking about Riot Games acquiring Wargaming Sydney, Magic Eden, which is a Solana marketplace, making royalties optional for buyers. So we're going to dive into some of these principles of Web3. The Game Pass on MetaQuest that was announced last week by Meta. And we'll be diving into voice acting pay. There's been a lot of discussion going through the socials about a voice actor of Bayonetta raising concerns about pay and the unfairness. And we're also going to be roping in some discussion on the potential impacts that AI could have in this segment of the industry. Great. All right. Well, I'll just jump into it because I actually have the first topic, which is the Riot Games. Everyone good? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Wargaming was founded in 1998. I was really impressed by that because I'm only eight years younger than Wargaming, apparently. You can calculate my age. Wait, younger or older? Anyway, let's move on from that. (laughs) Got to guess which one. Okay. Yeah, you have to guess. (laughs) And uh, Wargaming acquired Big World that was based in Sydney in 2012 and then became Wargaming Wargaming Sydney. Uh, Wargaming develops a lot of free-to-play real-time multiplayer games. If you have World of Tanks or Warships, um, that's from them. 
And they acquired Big Worlds that was developing MMO technology um, that was being utilized by World of Tanks. And then the acquisition happened, and now Wargaming owns the technology of, of Big Worlds. The Sydney studio has around 100 people and was very recently now acquired by Riot Games. The amount is undisclosed, and Riot Games, in turn, is owned by Tencent. And from the announcement, it sounded like the Riot team had had the opportunity to work with some team members from Wargaming Sydney, maybe related to this um, technology of the services they provide for MMO backend services. And we'll be jumping into just thinking about, okay, why does this make sense for Wargaming and for Riot? We'll just do a quick touch on the topic so that we can dive into the wider discussion once. Does anyone have thoughts? Um, it feels like a very positive uh, outcome for all parties. It feels um, like uh, a good acquisition for Riot, uh, maybe Wargaming uh, having a good person to sell it to. Uh, and actually for Big World, Sydney, it doesn't sound like many anyone's lost their jobs, uh, maintains basically that coherency of the studio down in Sydney, which, um, you know, they've been doing it for uh, 25 years, I believe. Um, and there's a lot of um, things that have been, have been built up there, you know, relationships, understanding, knowledge, technology. Um, so uh, Riot buying into this uh, gets a lot of that. Um, it's probably something to do with the market, you know, uh, sort of bear market at the moment, making things more difficult, wargaming, feeling a little bit of pressure. Um, and then also maybe being in a sort of different time zone in Australia with Eastern Europe could be more difficult. But Overall, I imagine all parties have had a, a, a positive outcome from this. After doing some research into Wargaming, um, I started to understand that actually the Sydney studio is a very small slice. The 100 people out of, I estimated between 4,000, 5,500 in total across all of their studios. And also, I, I assume it must be hard with the fairly recent closures of their Russian Lester studio, War, Wargaming Moscow and Wargaming uh, Minsk because of you know the war and sanctions. And then they, they um, opened new studios, one in Serbia and one in Poland with full relocations of whoever wanted to move there. So I can only assume that I had, had quite a lot of cost. And I looked into their uh, at least mobile games, which I'm going to make an extrapolation to their... Uh, other platform games that Russia was their mo their country with the most downloads and the second country in terms of revenue. So with the with the restrictions now with platforms, um, I assume they're taking uh, a hit into their revenue and their profitability. So looking at the 100 person studio, I assume it was a good deal. Um, Wargaming keeps the rights to big worlds. Uh, backend services, so there's no concern there about the the maintenance of being able to use that innovation for their games, and it also yeah helps to support the coffers of the new games that they're developing. They're developing two new mobile games, and so with all of the market um, the market downturn that we discussed and having to move out of out of Russia, that that allows them to keep financing those new games. And and Big World uh, sort of back in the day uh, when it was first founded was the biggest and best middleware for MMOs. And they've sort of built around that technology stack all this time. Um, their their um, focus has always been on live ops and running huge multiplayer games, um, which Wargaming, everything they've been doing is, is, is founded from that, right? So over the last 10 years, I'm sure they've passed on a lot of that information, 
Um, and I believe Wargaming is set up in sort of um, studio-led teams where each studio is focused on one game. They have sort of more of their own um, focuses and changes and they get to make their own decisions. So this probably feels like a natural thing where they've got a lot out of them and then actually mm-hmm. uh, Riot could still improve um, some of these areas, uh, definitely with live ops. I think Riot also... Um, you know, they're, they're just increasing their relevance in in their main titles, like League of Legends is obviously the biggest, but they, they're just trying to build out their known IP with this sort of technology. And, and who knows, maybe an MMO is coming from League of Legends. That could be. Well, it is coming. It is. Okay. So, oh, yeah, that, that is well, why, does it make, yeah. why does it make sense for Riot? It is essentially an aqua hire to bolster the internal knowledge of developing an MMO. It's also to support the live service of League of Legends and Valorant. Um, I, I think building MMOs is historically hard and that know-how comes from getting that expertise and people that have gone through the motions. And I think Big Worlds develop, supported the development of 30 or so MMOs. So I couldn't imagine a team of experts more than Big Worlds to support Riot in the League of Legends MMO that they're developing. Because there was a tweet, I think, where they put some expectations management that is still early in development. So there's some rumors about the MMO potentially being at risk and it's going to be very hard to develop. So this could be a, a, a way to try to in- decrease that risk and increase the chances of delivering. That makes sense. It's um, It's been interesting to see like Riot really kind of expanding with its League of Legends IP. Um, I, I'm not a, a League player. Um, I did a little bit of Dota and Still don't know what's going on when I'm watching it. <laughs> um, but like, I, I don't know if any of you saw Arcane on uh, Netflix, but yeah, yeah. it's really yeah. good. And yeah. it, I think introduced it, you know, those characters to people who never would have, you know, you don't didn't need to know anything about League of Legends to enjoy it. Um, so, you know, they've found some really good partners to do some you know, high quality um, material with their IPs. So it makes sense that they're going to build out an MMO and continue to kind of find ways to expand what is becoming a, you know, well, has been a, a really dominant IP. And yeah. we talk on, on this podcast and other people, and I'm not on it as well, often about the, oh, no, consolidation and just giant companies buying everybody. And But this feels different. This is not like, oh, Tencent bought another thing. It's like, no, Riot got it so that Riot can do more. And that, and that yeah, I'm excited about, like, with what they're, what they're doing. I'm like, yes, yes, bring it on, more of that. I'm interested. Similar, I'm not a league player. I like Tarkane. I'm like, yes, expand that IP, do it. Real me in. Give, give me more things. Yeah, you, I'm too think, late. Oh, sorry, you guys. I was on. just going to say, uh, do you think uh, you know maybe we're a little bit old to start playing League of Legends? But do you think Arcane would have encouraged people to like the younger generation to actually pick up the game, or do you think they tied the two together like great well, TV? There's Wild Rift game? as well, right, on mobile. So you got another entry point there. I was actually disappointed with Wild Rift. I thought that might be a sort of more accessible way in to the mm, whole thing and it's I like oh no no this is still pretty crazy actually yeah i'm just going to ring the bell again for mobile legends back bang and <laughs> if i am eight years younger than uh wargaming sydney then i'm 22 <laughs> so that's that's all fine per- perfect audience match yeah yeah i think um i just to answer the specific question i you know i suspect it's not going to get that many people moving from not playing league to playing league. Um, you know, anyone who's going to be somewhat inclined to do that probably is well aware of it. And, um, you know, maybe a, a few people will try it out, but I, 
think it's much more kind of going in the other direction of introducing an IP to a, a huge audience who is completely unfamiliar with it. Uh, and that helps them build out. I mean, so, you know, while it may not lead people to playing League, it might lead more people to play the MMO if they can mm-hmm. see these characters that they really like now available in a different genre that, you know, they weren't interested in the MOBA. But, you know, as they build this out into other uh, other genres and other platforms and uh, now probably a movie eventually. And, uh, you know, it just keeps mm. kind of expanding out. We'll have a League of Legends theme park soon. I don't know. <laughs> you know <it's, laughs> There's um, a design problem there, isn't there? That League of Legends, character-based roster thing, MMO. Okay, well, but hang on a minute. There's not enough characters to go around. So how are you, how is it massive? Mm. I guess it's in the universe, right? But you're not necessarily yes. going to be that character that you saw there. It's, it's based on the Rune Terra universe from what i understood so that i'm sure they'll introduce new new characters and in terms of tencent tencent offers its own game services so i can imagine also this acquisition of de- depth of knowledge in terms of doing back-end services for mmos and multiplayer online games it will i don't know if how much tencent has this crossover of knowledge but it could also support them with their expertise mm. so we'll jump into the next topic which might be spicy, might not be spicy. We'll see. Um, Tom, what's going on with Magic Eden? Sure. Yeah. Um, so for those that don't know, Magic Eden is uh, the largest NFT marketplace on Solana. And Solana in recent time has really grown into becoming sort of the number two area for NFTs in all of blockchain. So Ethereum is definitely still the daddy in terms of having uh, just transaction sizes, huge, you know, Board eight yacht clubs, two hundred thousand um, uh, per, per per sort of transaction. Uh, but where Solana sort of excelled is it's faster, cheaper, very very cheap transactions like sub sub ascent. Um, and Magic Eden was the primary marketplace. It expanded to capture over ninety percent of all of the sort of transactions, and that's mainly art collections. But there were some games coming through, um, sort of notable new ones. There's Eternal Dragons, which is an upcoming one launched through Magic Eden. They do a sort of launch program. So all of this is going well. And um, in NFT land, uh, there's basically uh, three ways that people get paid. Um, You have uh, the fee, sort of marketplace fee, um, which uh, is usually done by the provider of the marketplace. You have an idea of a royalty, which is for the creator or the builder of the NFT. There's a sort of kickback. And then you have the difference between sale price. So, if I could buy something for five sol and sell it for 10 sol, then I, as the user, has made five sol profit. And what was interesting is that this royalty segment, um, although coded into an NFT, so into the smart contract that built the NFT, it didn't need at the protocol level to be applied, meaning a marketplace could, could ignore it. They could um, not pay the, the royalty for every sort of transaction. Now, Magic Eden had been paying royalties. It had been following the best practices. But um, there was, in the last month or maybe two months, um, there were a number of other smaller up-and-coming marketplaces that just removed all fees. They got rid of their marketplace fee at 0%. They removed all royalty fees. They weren't doing the kickbacks. And it was just the sale price. Now, from a sort of um, user perspective, obviously, if you can buy something at 5 sol and sell it at 10 sol and pay no fees you've definitely made more as a user um but it was a very unsustainable model so uh you know the the most uh widespread one was one is called hades uh 
Dot.io, I believe. Um, but what was interesting is just how quickly it accelerated. So from a sort of market, and we're talking uh, in the region of sort of 40 to 100,000 transactions a day um, on Solana at the moment, uh, you know, it definitely spikes. Uh, Hades was capturing 30% of that, and it did this within a month. So from from unawareness to being awareness, it, you know, it's capturing a, re- a really reasonable portion. And it forced yeah, magic... Have... Yeah, go on. Sorry, sorry to, to, just like a question along the way. Um, you said it was an unsustainable model. Like, do they have any sort of revenue, or is it just like advertising-based? Or At the moment, uh, my understanding is Hades didn't have any um, direct revenue, but often these uh, the marketplaces still collect uh, actual um, NFTs themselves. So say they launch a platform mm. or new project, they'll ask for, you know, to be given a few of the NFTs or in promoting, they have bots that could arbitrage away. So there's ways that they can play their own system to sort of fund, fund. but that's a murky area. I'm not exactly sure what has or hasn't been happening, but it's possible. Um, but the most interesting thing is, for my opinion, is the defensibility here. So we had something that had a 90% market share, had a reasonable UI, UX, very great experience, um, good customer services, lots of people using it, the, the majority of users using it. And then within a month, they'd lost 30% market share to an upstart with terrible UI who just completely undercut the fees and they had no defensibility. So this was really interesting because I sort of relate it more to like an eBay um, where it's a kind of network effect dynamic where if you're eBay and you, uh, you know, you're selling, let's just say bikes, um, you attract people to your platform because other people are selling bikes. And if you go to the place that's selling the most bikes, then the bike buyers are also there. You can command higher prices on your bikes because everyone is looking at your service. For a competing service to compete on bikes, they need to attract all those old bikes or the or the sellers, and they need to attract the buyers at the same time. And it it's basically quite defensible in a non-Web3 area where the overhead of importing and putting up uh, things like bikes or whatever is quite difficult. In an NFT land, though, it's incredibly indefensible because the nft is um just a pointer essentially and for a marketplace to create you know a section let's call it bikes in nft it it only needs to read the smart contract uh, interpret it and then it's created a whole storefront for that particular nft type and this is what hades was doing it was ripping all of the collections that magic eden was having putting them up there and then selling them at a discount and users were responding. They had no allegiances, sorry, to Magic Eden. Um, they were moving the NFTs off Magic Eden, putting them on Hades just to undercut. And so the, the main story revol- revolves around uh, Magic Eden coming out and scrapping the uh, the royalty segment. They said royalties are now optional. So if you, as a lister of an NFT, you can choose to ignore basically the royalty or pay the royalty. Um, so this is sorry, undermining. Sorry, Tom. This is why yeah. I didn't understand because I thought it was the buyer, whoever lists. Wait, if someone created an NFT, they mm. could have a royalty attached to it, but then it's up to the buyer to decide whether they want to pay for it or not. Well, it was usually up to the marketplace to enforce that royalty. So, say on OpenSea, um, when you click to buy a NFT, it will say, you know, 10, 10, 10 Ethereum plus. 2% fee for 
OpenSea and 2% fee for the creator. And that was called the royalty. Now, what I didn't realize is that this is not protocol enforced, meaning that, that surprised in, me. Yeah, that in the yeah. NFT um, uh, config, you know, however they've been scripted, this particular section is just non-enforceable by the by by the protocol. So the protocol won't read or listen to this idea. It's it's up to the marketplaces to implement it. Now, up until this point, all the marketplaces had, and there hadn't been this competitive edge. But with these high transaction volumes and Solana seeing huge numbers of like transactions, basically compared to Ethereum, th this undercut was a lot faster, a lot, uh, a lot more. Yeah, with no planning, just happened, and and it's really showing that the users didn't care. You know, if I thought about it, like that's a bit like saying you don't want to pay the artists for their fees. You know, they, but they just wanted the cheapest NFT, and I think that's important to understand that like um, you can't if you're creating a new project and your business model is designed around well, we want to take quite large royalties because you know we're important. We've maybe paid Snoop Dogg to like be involved here, and that's part of this. This isn't enforceable in the layer, and very, very quickly, your entire business model could be evaporated. When you say royalties, does that include, for example, in a game economy where a game dev releases an NFT, and then the game, um, the game monetization is each time it's resold on the secondary marketplace, they get a, fee, a percentage. Is this the royalty fees as well? Exactly. Yeah. So oh, royalty. Wow. Because so yeah, those three three ideas. The fee is the the marketplace charging its own fee. No matter what happens, they can charge a fee on if it gets sold. But the royalty it can be set up in multiple ways. So two percent of all future sales could go back to any owners of an NFT, the creators of the NFT, uh, a white label address like a trust fund. You know, it, it can be quite complicated, which is a good idea because. Um, just like any business uh, or, or stock or share, or it's like a dividend, for instance, you know, it's a, it's a type of financial idea that could create some interesting uh, outcomes and usually is about funding and kicking back into the project. But because it's not enforced at the protocol level, it's completely redundant as shown here. So I imagine, you know, people are aware of this and um, we'll see an upgrade to uh, the ERC721, which is like the classic NFT um, script, uh, both on Ethereum and probably on Solana. But how they do that, it's I, I'm, I'm not technical enough to understand that. So well, isn't the more surprising thing that this didn't happen sooner then? This yeah. Was, yeah. What is it like? <laughs> I mean, this, well, I, it, it's maybe something where um, it's a faux pas, right? It's quite socially unacceptable to, <laughs> to just take someone out of, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, it's like not tipping at a restaurant, maybe. Where yeah. It reminds me of other uh, battles, right, which go on where usually people are hoping to secure a monopoly and be profitable in the future. So I still remember the video streaming battles of like 2007, and YouTube won because they didn't have any adverts. Yeah. Well, and well, everybody well, else well. had adverts. So it was like, okay, yes, yeah, YouTube. You, and they had no adverts, no adverts, no adverts. And they're like, everybody gone? Everybody gone? Great. Switch on the adverts. Yeah. <laughs> That's that the, the, Same with like Uber, for instance, right? You know, yeah. uh, take over a market, get everyone using your cars, then increase prices. It's like a, 
I can't remember what the type of capitalism is called, but yeah, that's a definite model. Interestingly, though, I always think about this. So Apple and the app stores, right? They charge their 30% fee. And you're, as a developer, in some ways inclined to pay that, right? They provide a service. They are good at what they do. They promote you. They do all the downloads and upload costs. But what's interesting about NFTs and, and blockchain is these services, these windows of marketplaces, they aren't the blockchain. They don't they don't provide the back end for driving the transactions. They don't provide uh, you know, the costs of of funding that blockchain. They are just windows to view anything on the blockchain. And as such, they outcompete themselves very, very quickly. So um it just makes it very hard to make a defensible model. Um one thing to think about, so I find it very interesting from the from the gaming's perspective where obviously you want your NFT collection to be viewed by lots of people and spent and, and invested in. But because of the ease of creating these marketplaces, you're, you're probably your best bet is to always try to make your own. Keep it yourselves, keep the revenues, keep those fees, if you can charge any at this point, because control is far more important than availability, it seems, like controlling where things are. And I think that's what Axie and I think Stepan is another good example where they looked at what was going in the market and very quickly responded by, we want full control. We'll make our own. We'll do our own things. So, yeah. yeah I don't know what – I'm always quite aware that I don't know if NFT as an idea will survive. I think it will have to evolve because there's so many oddities around it. You know, For instance, even on the artist side, the image isn't really included in the NFT. You know, It's actually just a link to a PNG somewhere, which is madness, you know you're really paying a lot of money for not actually even an encoded JPEG or, or, or anything. So you're going to say yeah. Anthony. I was going to say, yeah, the, yeah, there really are a lot of interesting um, stories there. Um, I, yeah, like you, I, I did not realize that the creator fees were not enforced, like were not enforceable by the smart contract itself. Um, and it sounds like that's not the case on Ethereum or Solana or anywhere. Um, because I was originally thinking, Oh, well, this is a reason that people just abandon Solana because they'll go, as creators to whatever chain has support for enforced fees. Um, at least as a creator, that's what I would do. Um, but uh, yeah, the defensibility is really interesting. It, it feels it's, I mean, it's like a commodities market, right? So it's not that you're selling things that are better than someone else. Or um, it reminds me a little bit of maybe of like travel websites, like you go to Expedia or Travelocity yeah. or like, they're all selling the same flights, um, but they'll, I mean, they try to get people through advertising and name recognition, uh, through rewards programs, through ease of search. Like, you know, it's it can be very difficult to find the right flight you want. And I will pick a place that has a better um, user experience because I need to find the thing that I'm looking for. Uh, so I guess that'll be what they'll have to move towards um, because, yeah, the race to the bottom in terms of costs obviously is extremely effective. Um, yeah. I think your point about you know, the, the marketplace having so much information about the NFTs and being able to profit off of that is, is really interesting. Like that feels like they could easily do that because they will have um, a lot of that access faster than, I mean, when you're flipping NFTs and specifically looking for like, you know, someone's listed it at, they, they've left a zero off their price or something, you know, you, you want to find that faster than everyone else. Um, and they'll likely be able to have a, a slight edge on that. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, this is this is exactly the what blockchain you know has been talking about. Is like it's wide open, non you know decentralized. 
anyone can do it. This is this is what happens. You know, it's um, and the people entering the the system need to be aware of that and remember that. You know, I I respect <laughs> Magic Eden for and, and others for having paid out. You know, just sort of out of um, you know, good character or however you want to to put it. Um, but uh, yeah, you're always going to find someone who's willing to just undercut if it's possible. And, yeah. and now you have to find a, some other way of, of defending it. Yeah. I wonder if there's also some behavioral psychology at play here to make that position less defensible. Because if it's a small price point and you're paying, a, I don't know, three, 7% fee on a small price point, the value that you see you're losing, your brain might be able to process that of, yeah, this is acceptable. This is okay. But when you're buying NFTs of, uh, I don't know, 300K, Mm. just these values where when you see the amount that you're losing, it's a bit like if you look at your income statement and look at how much you're paying in taxes, it just physically hurts to see yeah. a number that big that you're losing. And then you stop caring about customer service and what the experience is like. If you can save that money, um, you'll go to, to the competitor. I'm just, oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to take a little off topic with, uh, I find this similar to Airbnb when, I've, you know, you have the cleaning fee and you have the Airbnb fee yeah. and they break it out now and it's getting to a ridiculous point. I don't know if anyone's looked on Airbnb recently, yeah. with most cleaning fees in the like $70 plus, which for me, you know, you're renting somewhere for two days or something. It's ridiculous. Well, and you have to clean it as well. You, you, yeah, right. you have to clean. <laughs> You've got to clean and then pay for the cleaning so I, I imagine from a user experience perspective, like you're saying, Maria, about um, your income statement, it's it's not going to work. We're, we're going to have to see an inclusion of any fee into the final mm. buyer price. And then how those fees are divided up, you know, is depending on uh, on, on on protocol level uh, ideas of when the thing was minted or even just business to business relationships. We might have to go back to contracts and just being paid back directly. Uh, unlikely in Web three, they'll they'll work out a technical solution. Um, but yeah, it's going to require some changes on the block and uh, blockchain front. I imagine there will be a competitive advantage potentially to the chain that does it first, because maybe the creators will move to there. Just the arising. I'm yeah. I'm just surprised that this is not enforced at a protocol level, because wasn't it the a principle of Web three that you keep ownership of your creation and you'll always be rewarded from you know starting point a and then it's going through the community it just feels counter to what the principle is it is and i try to dig into what that meant and why it wasn't and i haven't been able to technically understand it um it might just be a solana thing i'm not sure if it's exactly the same on ethereum again though i'm i just know from um magic eden that they they called it out uh, as as un 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 uh solvable from the protocol level but the final point is really interesting. So what Magic Eden then did to compete against this, and they've now got back their 90% share, is they turned off their fees. So they say, oh, there's a sort of benefit for everyone. There's no fees. They also you know, made uh, the protocol, uh, the kickback uh, to the creator optional. But they've now lost that revenue stream. Everything now on Magic Eden has no fees. When before they were losing some percentage, they've lost all of their income revenue. So... How do they go back from 0% up to even any percentage? Even half a percent might feel like a lot to people nowadays. So 
it's it's a bit like the race to the bottom for uh, app stores and free to play when we were like five dollar apps and you went down to the 99 cents price point and then you went free and no one can imagine now if you're a reasonable um you know mobile creator you have to be targeting free you know i mean to to make a business model on 99 cents is far more difficult or at least very very niche in what you're targeting and so thus you know the same might be for marketplaces now they they need to look at other revenue streams. Well, marketplaces have existed before crypto, you know, where you sell used goods and you can pay to be placed in the higher tier of the presentation. So Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. There there are non crypto businesses that have achieved this. So Exactly. I think we can take and them as, just, as inspiration. It could I am curious, like how many crypto, sorry, yeah. How many people go to a crypto marketplace to browse? Like, you know, when you're absolutely right. When you're trying to find the best vacation or what car you want to buy or you know, which couch you want to get on Facebook marketplace, like, you know, anything that you see first is going to matter. But, um, you know, maybe eventually it'll, that'll switch. But I, I just have a hard time imagining going to a marketplace and not knowing almost like, I'm just going to buy an NFT today. Let's see which looks cool. Like, you know, I... Um, That's a great uh, challenge. That's a very <laughs> good challenge. Yeah. Yeah, makes us. It makes sense. Hmm. Um, does anyone else have anything to add on this on this topic? So where we have other deep topics. Well, there's one tiny thing that it's. I don't think it doesn't apply here, but there's a there's one world I know of where you have optional uh, ability to pay more, and people do do it. <laughs> which is this thing I have first heard of it as a case study at a theme park where you know they sell you a photo of you on the ride, uh, and they do, they do take all the photos and then you're like, do you want to buy one? It's like 15 bucks. And people are like, seems like quite a lot. Mm. And then they did a test where it was like, pay what you want. And that didn't work out. And then they did pay what you want and half of it goes to charity. And that way they made more money. That was the winner. Mm. It's literally pay what you want, but half of it goes to charity and that turns it right. around. And then the same thing comes up kind of in the humble bundle, right? They sort of dove in on that. And then you get into more things like Patreon, where it's more of a relationship and like, I want to support this person. So, okay, there is an aspect of human benevolence where we will choose to pay more when we don't have to. But we're talking about a marketplace where the prices can range from $3,000 to $300,000 or whatever. I think, I think there's a limit <laughs> to that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's mm -hmm. going to work at the top end, even if you could make it work. At the lower end. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So to come back on this, so this was actually in the Narvik newsletter. But, you know, it was widely everywhere. But MetaQuest announcements, what's the next thing? What are they doing? Now they've got legs. Okay. <laughs> now there's a Pro headset and it's $1,500. Woof, quite a lot. Okay. But it can do all these cool things. Uh, and then there's like, oh, and there's this Game Pass feature in it. Uh, and that did get my attention a little bit. And then I was disappointed. But uh, so just to go into that a little bit. so. The interesting thing here, it's a little bit like what we've just been talking about, right? When you want to produce a new world, a new ecosystem of some kind where people are creating things and consuming things and values being created for everybody all around, right? It's just a massive chicken and egg problem because no buyers are going to come if there's no sellers and no sellers are going to come if there's no buyers. Uh, you know, like we talked about the eBay for bikes, like, well, okay, if I want to buy a bike, why am I going to go to this place where there's nothing? So, okay, right away, you, ha you have to solve that. And, of course, this has been done in the past in various ways, but how do you do it? And when it comes to hardware specifically, it's like 
it's not just a chicken and egg problem. You know, it's like chicken and egg and uh, hen house and that they like that you have to have all of these things working somehow. Yeah. Uh, too. <laughs> yeah, right. And then and then people who want to buy eggs, it's slightly stretching the metaphor too far, really. But uh, it's kind of true. There's like you need a load of things to come together. Really, really hard. Uh, what I liked about this is it reminded me of like probably the closest to the best prediction I have made. Right, I'm gonna pick myself up here. The blog post is down, but you can still find it on archive.org. I've got to dig it out and repost it. So back in like 2008, uh, Sony had the PlayStation Move controllers, right? And 3D TVs were coming up. They were going to be a thing. And I was like, ah, wait a minute. There's a cool thing here, actually, because you could have 3D AR games. And Sony have solved the chicken and egg problem. They've already got the hardware. The TVs are coming. They've already got the interface that you would want because it can recognize where you are in 3D. They've got so many other pieces already that they could just make this be a thing. And the killer app is going to be that your move controller becomes a lightsaber in your hand. Now, of course, I was totally wrong about the 3D TVs because the 3D doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's not coming out to you in your hand. It was a vague thing in the background, so that didn't work. But right then along comes VR and Beat Saber is the killer app. And I'm like, yes. That I kind of, kind of, <laughs> I was kind of there. Uh, so I'm thinking about that again, right? Because okay, here we are. Right, it's another punt at VR. What are the ways of solving this chicken and egg problem? And so the software side, right? What are you going to do? Well, okay, you can just buy studios to make the stuff for your new platform, which Meta have been doing. And then Antitrust shows up and goes, "Hey, wait a minute, you're taking over too much of this nascent market." And arguably, it's too nascent for antitrust to get involved. It's like it hasn't even started. But it has started. But, you know, anyway, that's a whole other topic. Then you've got free games and a free-to-play model because, okay, there's there's lots of possibilities there. And VR chat, right, is huge and free, and there's loads of that value creation going on. So if you've got that in your headset, okay, already a bunch of content has been solved for you. There's people making it right now, and it's free for everybody. Uh, there was, by the way, this implied thing in the way they presented that the reason the headset has to be expensive is because people are getting all the value out of these free games, which Meta doesn't see any of the revenue of. So they wanted to make revenue from the headset. They didn't say that directly, but it's what it sounded like, which seemed kind of weird to, to try at this stage. Anyway, but then what I never thought of before is there's a third way, which is like, oh, what about subscriptions? What if there's a subscription for games somebody already has, and you go, oh, and you can also play those games on this new bit of hardware. So right away, some of that chicken and egg problem's gone away. It's like, oh, I could buy this, and there's already things I could do on it. So it could make sense. In that way, genius. The disappointing part is that, well, no, but they're not VR games. We're playing it on a virtual mm. screen. Uh, and like the Meta Quest Pro headset, it's like a step up in a lot of ways. I think it's still not like virtual screens are cooler than real screens. Not, not, not yet. So that was, a, you know, a bit of a down on that idea. But I, I'm still quite excited by how much they're bundling it up. But, oh, one more thing on that solving the chicken and egg is also the fact that the headset is the complete solution. It, it's all there. You don't need a high-powered PC as well. You don't need a monitor. You like, you just get this thing, and it's all there. That's all. That solves some of it as well. So I'm quite impressed, but still not enough. <laughs> impressed that like this is going to be it yeah, yeah the, the the quest definitely onto that last point um was the the 
first time I thought, you know, this is truly going to go mainstream. Um, I had been interested in VR for a long time, but even with my interest, I was often not using it because I had to like string wires up across my ceiling and boot the computer and try to get it to work. And like, it was just a lot of literal overhead, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, not to mention having to have a big computer, but my quest I've taken to bars and coffee shops and just had people like trying them out there. And, um, so they really did solve a lot of that accessibility and price points now down to a console. Uh, so that's certainly a lot better. Um, I, the Game Pass idea is interesting. Um, you know, I, I, like you were saying, it's, it's kind of like a Amazon Prime where like, all right, you've got Prime subscription. Now you also get Prime Video and Prime Music. And I guess Prime Music's not included, but um, you know, just sort of expanding the value of the core subscription. And then you know, I, everyone you know, pulled up Prime Video because now you've got a ton of content there. Um, I guess the, the challenge here is that you're not getting any new content from it. This is all stuff that you could just be playing on your computer um, or on your your uh, Xbox. And then, you know, VR is, it's very isolating. You can't see anything around you. You can't really share it with people. And um, I feel like that is something I'm okay dealing with in order to experience some of the really good VR content. But um, to just do, like, I mean, I'd rather be playing on a, a Steam Deck or something uh, than a, a giant VR screen just because it's it just feels a lot more like I'm still in the real world. And um, uh, yeah, so like, you know, if it were a bunch of really great killer apps, if it were like all Steam VR games now suddenly worked on Quest or something like that could make a big difference. Um, but yeah, I'm a little skeptical about how well this is um, going to work. Um, and also a little surprised if is Microsoft is Microsoft still doing the um, uh, HoloLens? Like, weren't they? I haven't heard about that in a long time. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's just like, you know, if they were working on their own kind of VR, AR stuff, it'd be, you know, it'd be interesting to see if this was sort of a predecessor to, you know, them giving up on that and moving over to supporting Quest Pro or something. But maybe um, it's not a threat because they're like, well, this is just a giant screen with our things on, so it's fine. Whereas, well, they've gone into yeah. partnership, right? This was the big announcement. Yeah, it as is well. a partnership. Yeah, yeah, where and I think the interesting bit of this story is that partnership in the sense that Quest might have found out that they can't sell it as a gaming, you know, peripheral to consumers, but they're looking at this business opportunity now where virtual meetings and, and everything like that. I don't know if anyone saw um Carmack Unplugged, it was called, which was sort of on the launch day. It was two hours of John Carmack in Meta virtual world on the vr headset just talking about what they'd done and everything and he you know he's a very interesting technical guy uh didn't no holds barred basically um and you could see these sort of people watching and you know it was it was live and, and everything was unscripted um and i could see the value there right you know i could imagine going to see a famous CEO and watching them in a sort of VR with attendance, you know, like an Apple event, let's assume I went there and I'd be in attendance. I could walk into a room and, and watch the keynote. I could walk out and I could demo in VR their new devices. Definitely in the future, I'm not saying in the next year or two, but um, that's, I think, more where they're pushing towards like reality gaming, uh, sorry, reality non-gaming where um, the the interests and the ideas of putting on your quest are to be involved in a social environment 
um, you know, there. And, 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 that, and that's a, that felt very interesting to me. Yeah, well, some people don't uh, buy it, but I feel like there is a possibility there. Like we've just been through this whole thing of the pandemic of not seeing anyone and doing it on calls and then getting back into offices and seeing each other again. Oh, oh how much better this is. And like, okay, but exactly why is it better? And how much yeah. of that could you solve with a VR headset? And I feel like it is less than people think. Like, for example, I think eye contact and exactly how that works is tremendously important. Okay, and so the MetaQuest Pro has eye tracking. Uh, right, okay, so maybe you start to solve that problem a little bit. Uh, I feel like you could get a long way towards that. And sure, when you're talking about a $1,500 headset, immediately you're sounding like you're talking to businesses uh, anyway. Hmm. Yeah. So just yeah. possibly... That makes sense. Yeah, my uh, only concern about this potential feature is accessibility, because I know quite a lot of people cannot use the VR headsets. Right. Um, yeah. So mm. Like we saw this before with the, the Nintendo 3DS, uh, right, had 3D capabilities, and then uh, I believe the way it went was they said, oh, okay, no, you, nobody's allowed to use the 3D in a way that matters to gameplay, because then we've lost the accessibility thing. And you're like, okay, well, hang on, what are we doing now then? Okay. Yeah, well, they so, had that, that yeah, little slider. You just turn it off. Yeah, yeah. 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 How yeah. much 3D? <laughs> like, all oh, the dimensions. The, the 3D part, like, looks like more of a problem than an opportunity, right? Like, I get another chicken and egg problem, 3D in cinemas, right? They, they took mm. a massive go at it. Okay, we're making the films in this way. We're projecting it in this way. We're doing the glasses. We do the whole thing. And it was pretty big for a while. And still, it's like, ah... Uh, Nah, not really. Um, so, yeah. I, I think um, Meta should take uh, more reference from Peloton. I think their business model could look more towards highly expensive hardware that's specialized um, with a subscription model to an environment um, where people come together to do something. Now, obviously, Peloton's all about fitness, and I think that's a very good one. You've got competitive levels, that you know, that hardware all links in. I don't know if any of you ever do cyclocross or um, CrossFit where you're on the bike and your RPMs are all being competed. It's, it's, it's a lot more interesting than just going to the gym. Um, and I think what Peloton did do well at first is they had these bikes, which were expensive, but you joined because you wanted to be part of this community that helped you feel or realize your fitness goals. And in the sense like VR being owning that VR headset could be uh, along with this subscription where that subscription could then pay for Meta to fund a load of free games, uh, um, a load of free events like um, uh, uh, music music uh, sort of venues where you could come and watch a live act, but you have to be paying that subscription and you have to have the headset. But once you're in there, it's a free environment. So that feels to me better than, say, the App Store model where they're sort of saying, oh, anyone can put anything on it. Um, then you pay this little bit extra and, and, you know, they haven't got a quality bar in the same way as Peloton had or quality bar in the same way, say, like Apple Fitness has. Um, so, yeah, I think that uh, subscription model should be the way they go. If we're if we're talking, sorry, I know we need to go to the last topic of today. Um, if we're talking about accessibility, I is the, it, is it is paying 30 percent to the app stores a lot? It does feel like a lot. And yet. It's a barrier to access millions of people who everyone, everyone owns a smartphone. You, you just get access to the audience. So you're paying a fee to get access to the audience. But when we look at a high 
um, luxury product because this is a luxury product. And, you know, Peloton's stock is tanking because they have high production costs and they have low retention. Um, I'm not, I'm, you know, it's not about Peloton, mm. so I won't, won't go into it. It just shows how that model can be quite fragile when compared to just try to get your product to as many people as you can with a lower barrier of entry. But what do you think the only comeback would be that the hardware, right? So a phone, they did a interesting thing where phone dynamics just got so cheap that everyone had one. And then you're right, like the app store became important because everyone's there. But with VR, at least, I know, you know, one of the main barriers for me, I just haven't bought it because it's expensive and I don't see the value. So if I can drive the value of that cost with a premium subscription that I want to be included, maybe it could work to bootstrap it. And then maybe, you know, cost dynamics change over time. Because you can sell the hardware at a loss even. Uh, yeah, to get yeah, yeah, or cheaper, yeah. yeah. This is what, like, Sony and Microsoft, I think, did usually did with their consoles, right? At least at, at, yeah. when it was first launched, they would sell it for less than it cost them, um, make up for it in royalties and first-party games. And then over time, you know it's going to become cheaper. Um, so it's, it's also a bit of a bet on just kind of the future of, of tech and pricing. But... Um, yeah, I think, so you weren't saying that they should be increasing their prices and aiming to like more in the thousand dollar range. Is that right for another no, no, or, I, or is that what you were thinking? I, I'm thinking that, um, you know, they can go for a, f I mean, the quest pro is $900, right? I, I believe somewhere around that. So they've already pushed that barrier up for this very powerful piece of kit. But what I think the Peloton bike did, right. And that's what I meant is. They attach that to the subscription service. And then when you were in that subscription, the bike excelled. You know, it had all these extra features and the community had all this ongoing elements. And it felt very curated. And if you've ever used a Peloton, you're like, it's much better than any other bike, but it's damn expensive. So I wonder whether that could be a, a route in where this this sort of subscription gains you all this access within this VR world that Meta has curated. Um, rather than it being third party where it's, you know, drop in, drop out, load up an app. It's completely different look and feel and, and everything like that. We have to go into the last topic for today. Let's do it. Anthony. Okay. Um, so the last topic is kind of a two-parter. Um, it's been a little bit of um, voice acting drama recently um, in, in games uh, and movies. Um, so, you know, one to mention is that uh, the Mario movie was, they released the trailer recently. And uh, I think everyone was a little surprised to hear that Mario was Chris Pratt and really just sounds like Chris Pratt. And, you know, this is really surprising. Charles Martinet has been playing the voice of Mario for like 30 years or something. Um, and so everyone was wondering why, why not go with the actual voice of Mario? Um, so there's a lot of drama around that. Um, and, potentially dig into that. But then also just recently, there's been drama around um, Bayonetta 3, where the original voice actor, who is uh, Helena Taylor, Taylor uh, did not renew with them for the third um, in the series. And just, I think the game is going to come out like in a week or something. And, and just a few days ago, she put up this series of videos saying that they had offered her an insulting amount of money, something like $4,000 for the whole role. And that, you know, kind of appealing to fair pricing and, and treating voice actors, you know, better. And um, 
And so uh, Jennifer Hale, who was the voice of um, Shepard in Mass Effect, among many others, uh, ended up being hired for it. And, um, you know, she's kind of historically been a big uh, workers' rights activist. And so it was kind of interesting that she went in despite this question about pay. Um, But now Bloomberg has come out and done some research, and it sounds like maybe um, Helena Taylor was offered quite a bit more than she was representing. Uh, so there's all of this question around those. Um, so I think actually, let me let me stop there for a second, and then I'll go into the the AI side. But um, just curious as to you know what thoughts are around voice actors. I, I have not worked with a voice actor in a game before, um, so I'm not as familiar with that world. But uh, it's there's a, a lot of passionate people out there about this right now. Well, I mean, right away it makes me think. Uh, I, I think it's probably the least interesting part of it, but that. Uh, paradox of choice between the authentic or very best voice for the character versus a famous person that you're going to get people in the door just because it's them. Like that's been going on years and years and years, right? Like Disney having this debate, Robin Williams is the genie and he said, no, but you can't make me the main thing in promotion. And they found a way to do it. And uh, recently, I think they got really good at actually going the other way. There's some really great, you know, casting calls and finding the perfect voice for a character. That's amazing. They're going straight to Disney Plus, so you don't know. The box office effect is anyway, but yeah, that tension is always there and it's not going to go yeah. away. I think it's interesting sure in this case, though. Like, I mean, but I mean, Mario is a, a bigger name than Chris Pratt. Like, you know, yeah. the, you've already got all of your your IP and your followers and everything. Um, I did see someone post an interesting point, which is that an hour and a half of the kind of squeaky Mario voice might be a bit much. Um, it's, it's a great personality and great character, but you don't usually hear long monologues in that voice. Yeah. Um, He's almost so a that may have protagonist been... as you're playing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, they, I mean, maybe they did some testing and just realized, like, that's... It's not going to work. I and mean, that's not what this voice was designed for. It was, you know, designed for quick little snippets. Um, and, and you know, Martinette's done a fantastic job of that. But, uh, yeah, maybe that was a big part of it, too. I don't know. Well, do you think, um, Mario is an interesting voice as well, that do you think the voice actor of Mario is a single person or is it multiple people over all the years? I, th- I think it is a single person. Um, you've, uh, you can see like he's probably in his like late fifties now or sixties. Um, but, uh, he, I, I saw an interview with him and he talked about how they had approached him, you know, way back when to do it. Uh, they may have had someone else filling in occasionally, but my, my understanding is that he's been the majority of, of that character uh, over the, I guess, was it Mario 64, I think, when they first had the voice? Um, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. I think my... Oh, I shouldn't go into this. Not It's not really the topic here. I think my, my main issue with voice acting is that you also need to have cultural sensitivity. If it's a character, a character that looks in a certain way or comes from a certain background, or you should have a voice actor that that matches mm. the, the the character and it just feels a bit awkward that I don't think Mario was always meant to be you know with an Italian voice but it kind of happened with that way that it has some Italian accents to how people remember and say certain Mario quotes so it just feels a bit odd like why not get a, a voice actor that's closer to to the character anyway uh yeah, fair point um but so, so transitioning then, though, this starts to get um, really interesting in, so, I mean, right now, one of the biggest topics, probably the biggest topic in tech is, is AI. 
And, um, you know, we're all seeing what's coming out of like Dolly and stable diffusion. And, um, you know, it's, it's not there yet, but it's definitely coming along rather rapidly. Uh, but, you know, visuals is certainly not the only place that AI is going to appear and, and is appearing. Uh, and so right now there are services, um, like, uh, Replica Studios and Synantic.ai, which do full AI voice acting. So you can type in your text and uh, choose the various voices they have, and then the voices will read them pretty well. Uh, you can tell it's not a human, but it's not bad. Um, and I have little doubt that it's going to become almost indiscernible from a human within the next few years. Uh, so you have full AI voice acting, and then you have things like voice mod, which will in real time, replace your voice. Um, streamers have a lot of fun with this, but it also means that, you know, I could be Chris Pratt in, in a movie yeah. or sound like Chris Pratt in a movie um, without actually being Chris Pratt. And so, you know, questions there, like, you know, what is the impact going to be on the, you know, first the voice acting uh, community and uh, and those, those employees. And then, you know, second is like, you know, beyond just sort of replacing voice actors, if that's what we want to do, like what else could AI voices actually add to games? Um, were the kind of like the two big questions I had. Well, if we look at the cost of creating a deep world that feels real, uh, we once discussed here on the podcast, I believe it's called InWorld AI. It's a company that's fully focused on building AI uh, NPCs that feel uh, feel real to populate digital worlds that are expansive with lower dev cost. And this is where I see it coming into play because voice, hearing someone in a game say something to you in a voice is a completely different level of immersion as having, you know, Final Fantasy Times, uh, a pop-up that has a lot of letters to, mm. to read, but that has a huge amount of cost to, to develop. And even if you're walking through a sprawling city and you're going through a bustling market, you want to hear the little voices having all of these discussions. Again, that comes with a cost. So I see that this is a potential of, of AI. I'd, I'd love it to come to indie games because I, I love indie games as well, I do a lot. And always the voice is the bit where it's like, oh, I just read this and there's some noise. Blah, 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 blah. Whatever, like Outer Wilds, absolutely amazing game. And then just weirdly silent, there's just this text with this character now. Okay, well, they're aliens, they probably not speaking English. But I, just the idea that that could become cheap and anybody could put it in, yes. Yeah. All right, great. Be because that's it. It's, it's a price thing, right? From an indie game perspective, the th one of the first things to cut back on is voice. And even, um, you know, even from the size of uh, the creating the files, it is also a lot of uh, headache, you know, it, it, like WAVs, you know, what formats and things. Um I know uh, that when um, I've been looking at adding voice and I sort of work with a few voice actors, we have gone with cheaper ones who are sort of like a company and they might have one guy who will do five voices for you, you know, and just read various scripts. Um, and they added a color, like a lot better than having no voices, but we had to definitely look at our pricing and just sort of see what we could afford. Um, so I think AI immediately comes in for definitely those unknown, uh, voices sort of surroundings or, uh, you know, a shop seller, maybe it just comes in. Um, but if it's the lead character, I would imagine people might start to take issue with that, you know, a little bit like when we had, uh, the mid journey winning the art contest. What if we have an AI character? created that is completely made up and people love her or him 
you know, then I think it's sort of you, you're brushing that barrier again. So um, I, I've been looking, I, I did a quick bit of research about the legality here. So um, in if you are impersonating someone, so if I could do an accent of Samuel Jackson, I am not, uh, there's nothing Samuel Jackson could do about that. It, I'm standing here making his voice with my voice, recording it. I could say anything. The only thing that I can be uh, in trouble for is if I uh, make a deflammatory comment. So if what I say, the words that I say are bad towards Samuel Jackson, then that could create a, you know, a legal issue. But the fact that I'm impersonating him has no issue. I could say complete nonsense, like reading a shopping list is Samuel Jackson and there'd be no recourse. So I wonder if that's true from an AI perspective, because an AI isn't actually impersonating they are making or creating the sound therefore and are they responsible you know you can ask an ai i think there's a really good example here of joe rogan meets steve jobs where there's a podcast a 20-minute podcast and i recommend listening to it where they both sound like the two characters joe rogan and steve jobs but the content the words that have been said were made up nothing was recorded or taken the whole interaction, what they talk about, is an AI just generating it. And then is that impersonation? That's just creation, right? Again, and I believe that sets a lot of minefields, basically, from a legal perspective. Well, there's a, there's a question well, I don't also know the look at, that might be related. What we're about, something. But it was quite recently that James Earl Jones sold, right, or signed off the rights to do the Darth Vader voice. Uh, to a voice mm. AI company, I think. And, and I was like, did he have to do that? Or could they have just done it? So is it mm. different when it's a character's voice that you're impersonating versus a real person? Real person, no, of course. Character's voice, is that owned? That was very unclear to me. I wonder if it's um, like a training-based thing. Like they, they can use his real voice to train. Because if, you, if you're training off of a voice, then you're sort of like remixing samples in, in a way. Like it's, mm. it's, it's messy, but... You could at least, I think, argue that. Um, whereas, you know, if you're just synthesizing it and it just sounds really, really close, but you built it from scratch, I mean, it'd be like, um, you know, just sort of figuring out the recipe to Coca-Cola. Like they, I don't think they can sue you if you just happen to make something that tastes really, really similar, um, as opposed to actually like stealing the recipe and, and using that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, lots of interesting legal side. Um, I, I was remembering Red Dead Redemption 2. I was trying to remember the number and I found it. They had 700 voice actors in that game. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah, and an additional 500 motion capture actors. Uh, so like, I think they were like the number one employer of actors for a few years in, in Hollywood. Um, so, uh, yeah, in terms of scale and scope and everything, like, to be able to have all but like maybe the top few. Like, I, I think your, your point was interesting. Like, if we may want the top couple of, of characters, like maybe Joel and Ellie in, in um, Last of Us are still voiced by humans who can add like just that extra bit of, of um, emotion, like a, you know, a human piano player versus a, a, a AI piano player. But if it's not one of the lead characters, I, I have to think that all of those other ones are gonna start being AI voiced. Yeah. Um, I mean, not only is it cheaper, but I mean, the, the ability to go in and adjust a line of dialogue late or rearrange. I think, oh yeah, it wasn't, um, I think they changed the name of one of the cities in Red Dead Redemption too. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers this, um, but there, for some reason a city had to be 
changed and they had to go back and get, I don't remember how many voice actors to re-record all of their lines that had the name of that city in it. Whereas if you were using AI, that'd be, you know, <laughs> find, replace, you're done. Um, so it, you know, beyond even just cutting out the cost of the human side, the development time and flexibility is just tremendous how, how much of a difference that is. Yeah. Um, I'm, so, I'm not sure we'll get to a point where actors for the main characters or the characters that have most impact in the game will ever be substituted by AI because AI is very weak. Machine learning is very weak in understanding emotions and the, the relationship with the voice actor and the characters, you have to cross that bridge between the emotion that they're trying to portray in game and how the actor is you know, doing the voice acting. And if you're working with an AI, you can't have a conversation really with AI and say, oh, just, you know, put more power and emphasis and more emotion into that. You're going to turn a dial, right? You have have little dials of frustration, (laughs) anger, love. and I don't think that's inconceivable, though. I feel like that that. could be... Oh, there we go. (laughs) I wonder what that noise was. The, like, I... It's generally not gone well, I would say, to bet against AI. It's generally surprising. I was thinking about this in terms of uh, why even get Chris Pratt? You could just do an AI Chris Pratt. But uh, it's one thing to read something in a voice. It's another thing, again, to do their choices of how to do that line and the comic timing and all of these things that makes an individual successful. An AI that just replicates their voice is not going to do that. But, right? Well, what if it could? Let's get sci-fi, right? What if it's, what if a, what if an actor, what if an AI voice could do it and could do the comic timing better? Well, definitely. Is that inconceivable? No. De- yeah, I... Listen to this Joe Rogan, Steve Jobs podcast. They can do it. You know, they get the essence of the voice, and it comes across in the podcast. It's ever so slightly, um, you know, uncanny valley where things are a bit weird, but. At, at its core, it's it's a it's a it's a realistic uh, tone and 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 focus. What I actually thought, because I've been doing AI uh, artwork, so I've just been learning on it, and I think what AI could be used for is to generate a vast array of sentences that you could then listen back to and pick through what you like. So what AI is very good at is just quantity. It can crack out lots of things but it's not always getting it right. But certain times it just gets it perfect uh, and you can pick through that. So I could imagine a contract being given to a voice actor to say a hundred sentences that, you know, hit all these key tones. Uh, They give the rights to a character for, I don't know, some amount of money. Then the team uses that to generate an AI that they then script. And then they send all the scripted vocals back to the voice actor who listens and if he doesn't or she doesn't like them would re-record that one sentence and send it back essentially speeding everything up uh allowing the team to get what they need to do done giving the voice actor uh, you know credit and credibility for creating the voice in the first hand and then giving the voice actor the the right to give back their voice as they see fit now that might sound, oh, you're undercutting the voice actor's time. Well, what happens if the voice actor could now work with even more studios, do even more characters, provide even more feedback? They only have to read 100 lines. Think of it that way around. Then as a voice actor, I'm now 100 voices in, in this 
at the same amount of time as it's taken me to do, you know, maybe one one game. So that's where AI in my head starts to work. Now, there's definitely, it's not there right now, but um, it's happening so fast. It's just an example of this thing that's the real ideal for me. It's not, I think it's not naive that the very best stuff is going to be AI computers working with humans together. Yeah. You get that cooperation working, right? You've got it the best plan. It's even really good in chess, which surprises me. Uh, I think, just to just to go ahead and make a huge bold bet, right? I, this is what I'm saying. It goes go all the way out. I, let's say, where are we now? Okay, 2036, Disney Plus. Watch any film with any actor in any role that you want. That's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think just uh, when we discussed about Dali and Mid Journey and the in the R pipeline of game development, I think you can take 80 percent to be AI time. But you'll still need a twenty percent to take it to the finish line with the with the humans. So you'll accelerate your development, you'll reduce your costs. But you know, maybe you need one actor who's doing the emotion and the intonation. And um, sorry, I lost the 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 word. But then the AI can do multiple voices, so you can have one person doing all the kinds of voices that you need. But if we're talking about AI being able to portray emotions accurately. I think at that point we're talking about the singularity potentially and I think we're still far away from that but it doesn't know emotions it just knows it's accurately represented what you've told it to do so I I feel that's where it 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 doesn't know what it's doing and and it's always a curation process so I've always felt AI now has the idea generation down you know it it can do everything so much but it, it still can't curate correctly like if you ask an AI, write a hundred sentences, pick your most emotive sentence. There's no way it could understand that concept, but you could ask a human to go through this hundred AI sentences, pick the emotive, most emotive one. And it, and you would get in the top 10, I would imagine with, with a lot of different um, checks. So it is a tool. AI is a tool. How you utilize that tool, you have to have innovative ways, but the humans who understand that in their industry and i think this is really important it's very industry specific um i can see in game design ai being really useful balancing uh testing even playthroughs or run-throughs of level designs you know and, and i'm not i might be taking somebody's job in some sense like there's a level designer who already is doing that but i'm not taking away the creative side or the emotive side i'm taking away the the brute force checking of levels the brute force creation of playing 100 levels with this tank and what's the balance of his of of the damage so that's difficult but good companies will see and and leverage that to an advantage in their niche and i think that's important that we're still in that niche phase of ai and, and figuring out how to apply it to that niche is where the where the value is I think this is a really good point to wrap up today's episode because from what I've seen AI in a topic could be discussed in a full in a full round table. And we've started to see a lot more content around this. So yeah, it's all it's such an interesting topic to to dive into. Yeah. If you want to add your um, ideas to this discussion, you can find us on the Navic Discord. And thank you all for joining us. Lovely to have you here. We'll see you next week. 